we have a little bit different children's time today because um, this will be a quiz for anybody who's listening, okay? Have you ever heard of Leonhardt Euler? No. Nope. You know what? I probably hadn't either until I was in junior high at least. How about Nicholas Copernicus? Ever heard of him? Yeah, you have. <laughs> Very good. Some of us have. That's great. That's great. <laughs> On Tuesday, we actually will have the commemoration of these two mathematicians and scientists. We can do that in the church. We're not afraid of scientific investigation. And Leonhard Euler, whose name is a little bit hard to say, even in German, was a Swiss guy. And he was really, really bright. He was an astronomer and an author and a mathematician. And I read that he investigated infinitesimal calculus. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds really, really smart. And then Nicholas Copernicus was earlier than Euler. And he actually was a Roman Catholic canon. And he looked at some of the evidence and he said to himself, you know, maybe Earth isn't the center of the whole universe, because that's what people thought. In, in medieval times, the Earth was the center of the universe, and Jerusalem was right in the center of the Earth. Well, that was lovely philosophically, but it was wrong. So Copernicus made some observations, and he says, you know, I think maybe we have the sun, and the Earth revolves around it. That was pretty controversial because everybody thought that's not what the Bible says. But they had their own understanding that they were defending, not really anything specific that the Bible said about it. So Martin Luther called Copernicus a fool and a donkey. <laughs> but Luther should have kept his mouth shut on that one. Luther wasn't good at falling silent, and he had opinions on everything, all of which got written down, which was not too helpful. But I just think it's important to know that in the church, we can commemorate people who are scientists and mathematicians and astronomers like Euler and Copernicus, that we're not afraid of observations that people make. And if it seems to conflict with what our ideas were of the Bible, then we can change our ideas. But that's really challenging for some people. So let's think about those two guys with strange names, Euler and Copernicus, on Tuesday and give thanks that we have bright, bright people who are thinking about things and proposing new ideas. And my hope is that we can just be accepting of those new ideas when they come along. Because it doesn't mean the old ideas were wrong. It just means we have new information. Let's have a quick prayer together. Gracious God, keep our minds open and our hearts open so that when brilliant people think about things and get new insights, we can be open to those insights and not be afraid. Amen. Thanks. These Sundays after Easter used to have special Latin names. I've talked with you about those before, the Sundays before Easter during Lent and the Sundays after Easter. One of the reasons I like to talk about the way things used to be 
is because they're not that way now. And that means that the way it is now is not the way it's going to be in the future. Everything keeps changing, doesn't it? And that's okay. And we need to try to adjust gracefully to those changes. But it's fun to think back to how things used to be. Sometimes those special Latin names of Sundays would be on the top of hymn boards. I bet you there are some old churches in the country back in Nebraska where if you looked in their hymnals, they'd still have all the labels for those special Sundays. Like Good Shepherd Sunday was Misericordia Domini. Misericordia, the loving kindness, the tenderheartedness, Domini of the Lord. The loving kindness, the tenderheartedness of the Lord fills the earth. That was the entrance hymn for Misericordia Domini, which was Good Shepherd Sunday. And then there was another Sunday that I always kind of liked, and we'll talk more about it. It was called Jubilate. And if you read that in English instead of in Latin, you would say Jubilate. And that's what we'll be talking about. The entrance hymn for that Sunday said, make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands, sing forth the honor of God's name, hallelujah. So it's pretty clear that we're still in the Easter season, isn't it? Then why, for the last thousand years or maybe more, have the gospel lessons for these Sundays been taken from John's narrative of Monday, Thursday, the discourse that Jesus had with his disciples less than 24 hours before his death? Part of the reason that we might have lessons from Jesus' final discourse after Easter is because of the comfort and joy that is brought to us in this season and that we hear in this lesson. So there's going to be a long introduction to this text because it just pops on us when you, when you look at it in the bulletin. Jesus foretells his betrayal after he has washed the disciples' feet and says, I've set you an example. Then after Jesus foretelling his betrayal, Judas Iscariot leaves and goes out into the night, as John tells us. And then Jesus abruptly says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then immediately thereafter, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And right after that, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. And all that brings us just to the opening of chapter 14, which is the source for today's gospel lesson. The last couple of weeks at Bible study, I have said that it would probably be well for us just to read that chapter 14, John, slowly, preferably out loud to yourself, and then sit with it. Just give the words time to sink in and be present to that chapter. I guess that's a little homework assignment for you if you'd like to do it. John 14, sit, read it aloud to yourself, and then just sit with those words for a while. Thomas speaks up during this discourse and asks for some clarification, as we would expect from Thomas. And Philip makes what is probably one of the strangest comments in the gospel when he says to Jesus, um, Lord, show us the Father and uh, we'll be satisfied. It's like, really? Really, Philip? You just like to like see God and then that would be okay? What a strange comment. And Jesus answers Philip, not without some exasperation. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? 
My dad always used to say, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Then Jesus talks about asking his father to give the disciples another advocate who would be with them forever. And that is the spirit of truth. Then the disciple Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, asked Jesus a question that seems not to follow from what Jesus has just said. The disciple asks, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And with that question, we finally get to today's gospel lesson because Jesus answers that disciple saying, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Do you remember just hearing that? That phrase, make our home with them, by the way, occurs only twice in all of Greek scripture, both times in this chapter of John. So this chapter in John ranges in material from the simply human, like Philip's rather absent-minded foolish request, to the truly sublime. And as for me, one of the most sublime parts of today's gospel lesson occurs when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. One of the things that has always really intrigued me about this passage is that in the original, the verb, let not, and the possessive pronoun, your, are plural, but heart is singular. That's not the way we have it in today's translation. But in fact, in the Greek, heart is singular. Well, that gives somebody like me plenty of chance for reflection and wondering, huh, what do you suppose that means? It's not a misprint, I can assure you. As I thought about this particular verse then, I thought to myself, maybe the heart of all of us is more than the hearts of each of us. In fact, I do believe there is something synergistic that happens when hearts are tuned together. And it reminds me of that quote from Mary Oliver, the poet that I've shared with you before. There is something that has to do with all of us that is more than all of us are. Let not the heart of us be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It strikes me that here Jesus is talking to us about thinking about our thinking. We are not to let the heart of us be afraid. John Cashin was an early church writer, so early that St. Benedict used Cashin, referencing his work when St. Benedict was setting up the Benedictine rule. And Cashin wrote long, long, long ago, we are to place our thoughts on the scales of our heart, which is a beautiful thing to say. We are to place our thoughts on the scales of our heart and weigh them with exacting care. Cashin has five things to think about. Number one, is that thought filled with what is good for all? Number two, is that thought heavy with respect for God? Number three, is it genuine and true in the feelings that underlie that thought? 
Number four, is that thought frivolous because of human show or some drive towards novelty? Number five, has the burden of vainglory lessened that thought's merit or diminished its luster, which is a fancy way of saying, are we just a little bit too full of ourselves? You don't have to remember Cashin's five questions. You do, I would ask, need to remember the idea that way back then, in about the year 300, Cashin is asking us to think about our thinking, just as Jesus is asking us to do in this lesson. Maybe we'd do just as much good to remember the rotary four-way test. Anybody here a Rotarian? Or any other system that you've learned to see if your thoughts are leading you upward or pulling you down. This is a crucial point, theologically and psychologically. Are your thoughts lifting you up or are you letting your thoughts pull you down? As part of the good news, it's that we don't have to go through this process alone. We have the advocate that was promised to us by Jesus. And some translations speak of the consoler or the comforter will come. And sometimes we talk about the paraclete, the fancy Greek word we mentioned here in church. But the Holy Spirit is the one who will be our advocate, who will help our thoughts to lead us up rather than pull us down. We could even say in the broad sense of that word, advocate, that the Holy Spirit is our attorney. Remember the Spanish word for attorney, abogado. It sounds like advocate. And someone told me just this week that the derivation of that original Spanish word, abogado, means to console. The Holy Spirit is going to have consolation for us. She's going to have some good advice for us. And like any good attorney, she's going to have some questions for us. Questions like, who are we really? Who is our neighbor? To what is God calling us? And yes, those questions should sound familiar. And you're going to hear them twice more in the Sundays I have left, because they're incredibly important questions. Who are we really? Who is our neighbor? To what? is God calling us. We need that advocate, heaven knows. We need that consoler. We need that comforter. Because among many other things, our brains have what's called a negativity bias. Neuroscience scans have shown us that many of us go around with an overactive set of alarm bells. And when they go off, when the alarm bells go off, sound reasoning and healthful action shut down and fear and avoidance set in. That negativity bias was given to us to keep us out of danger. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that negativity bias, if those alarm bells are left unchecked, it will see danger where there is none, resulting in anxiety, withdrawal, and isolation. Does any of this sound familiar? Do you know folks who are stuck in those patterns of anxiety, withdrawal, and isolation because they see danger where there is none? This is such a human thing. Back in Nebraska, we're having a mild winter. 
We say, isn't it wonderful? We have an open winter. We haven't been sliding around on the ice. And someone says, yeah, but you just wait till March. That's a negativity bias. Or my grandmother, I've told you this story before, who was such a vital woman. And we were telling somebody else about my wonderful grandmother. And that woman said back to us, yes, but you know that kind can just go in a flash. That's a negativity bias. And it's toxic. It's toxic. So anxiety, withdrawal, and isolation, that's not good for the heart of us, is it? Like a colleague of mine on the Big Island of Hawaii once said, she said, my sensei says, be aware, but don't be anxious. Be alert, but don't stew about it. Of course, in my family, to know was to worry. I've told you that before. Nevertheless, my mom had taped inside a kitchen cupboard door this little saying, and it went, fear knocked on the door. Love answered. No one was there. And so we can tell the heart of us not to be troubled, but that's only the beginning. Because if we leave it there, that's a little bit like telling people, now don't you think of the color brown? Because the minute you hear that, of course, you have just thought of the color brown. So in addition to not letting the heart of us be troubled, we also need to turn the heart away from fear toward joy. Remember those fruits of the spirit that we are going to be talking about. Love, joy, peace. Remember, gifts are given, but fruit is grown. The spirit of joy must be cultivated in our hearts so as to weed out that negativity bias that may so often be scanning the environment, usually even without our awareness, often without our awareness. William Sloan Coffin, that noted preacher from decades ago, said, faith is not believing without proof, but trusting without reservation. Faith is no substitute for thinking, like Euler and Copernicus. On the contrary, it, it's what makes good thinking possible. By taking us beyond familiar ground, faith ends up giving us so much more to think about good things to think about. Certainly, this is still William Sloan Coffin, certainly, Coffin says, Peter and Andrew and James and John in following Jesus received more to think about than as though they'd stayed home fishing. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Martin Luther, in one of his sermons on the Gospel of John, said, the one thing needful is that we trust in our Lord Jesus Christ and his word, which means when we are cast down under sorrow and temptation, it is but for a little while. Do you hear Luther telling you to think about your thinking? It's just for a little while. So that we may find comfort in our suffering, Luther says, for it is impossible to attain happiness unless we have previously suffered pain and sorrow. I actually don't care much for that line from Luther. 
but I think he's right. I've often said something like, we don't know how good we've got it because we don't know how bad it can get. Shall we all go to Mariupol for three weeks? Spend a month or six weeks in Syria? But behold, Luther says, what comfort. The Lord informs his disciples what joy awaits them, Luther says. Jesus says, I will see you again. And this came to pass on Holy Easter Day when the disciples saw him in a new and everlasting life. Similarly, Luther says, Jesus also sees us and our hearts see that for our sake, he has overcome sin and death and the devil that we too through him should live eternally. That is everlasting and eternal joy which overcomes all sorrow and shall never be taken from us, Luther says. And so we practice joy. We practice it because the more we practice it, the better we get at it. And we practice it because for some of us, it may not come naturally to be joyful. Remember the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leads the 99, goes after the lost sheep until he, he finds it. And then when he has found it, he doesn't just haul the sheep back to the fold, throw the bolt on the gate and say, oh, good, if I get home in time, I can still watch Jeopardy. That's not what he's talking about. No, no. Rather, the shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulders and rejoices. You can read that parable. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. They're practicing joy. They're using this occasion to give thanks, to rejoice, practicing joy. We sang about this three weeks ago. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me and on his shoulder gently laid, and home, what? Home rejoicing brought me. We sang it three weeks ago. Or how about the story of the woman who had the 10 silver coins, probably in her headdress at that time? She loses one of them, but she lights a lamp and sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, does she just do it back on her headdress and say, well, what a pain in the neck. I think it's time for a rum and coke. No, no, that's not what she says. When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, what? What does she say in that parable? The first words from her are rejoice, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Practicing joy. Practicing joy been one of the great thefts of this pandemic because we were not as able to get together and practice joy. That's going to change. And so we, you and I, sisters, brothers, siblings, we grow the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is joy, but growing fruit takes cultivation. We grow that fruit individually by practicing and savoring and repeating and revisiting our gratitude. And collectively together, 
by sharing, retelling, reliving, and reviving our joy together. It's like that old Swedish proverb said, shared trouble is half a trouble. Shared joy is double joy. The heart of us is not to be troubled. Neither is it to be afraid. Rather, in and through our comforter, our advocate, our consoler, our hearts are to be filled with joy, comfort, and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. It's not just at Christmas. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord. Make a point of it. Jubilate. Make a joyful noise unto God, all you lands. Sing forth the honor of God's name. Hallelujah.